Hello and welcome. You are listening to the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our hope that you will be encouraged and that your desire to follow Jesus Christ will be challenged and strengthened as you listen to this podcast. For more information on location, service times, and what to expect on your next visit, go to coastaloakschurch.org. Now, grab your Bible and study along with us as you listen. Amen, amen. What a great job, choir. Thank you so much. Great worship set this morning, too, by the worship team, just all around. Lots of good energy. If you're anything like me, it's just good to be back together, worshiping again, right? Even just one week away kind of helps you remember. It's good to be back, yeah. And hey, round of applause for Andy and the team that was able to get an improvised service online last week. Can we give them a round of applause? Thank you to Andy and all of them. Yeah, it's a great thing. It's kind of an improvised week last week, wasn't it? Did, did y'all have to improvise at all during the cold weather? Did y'all have to like think on the fly a, a little bit, a few times? Yeah. Uh, so maybe you had that moment, you're looking in your pantry and you're like, we have tuna fish and ranch style beans and peanut butter. What are we going to make with this? I, I don't know. One of those ingredients does not go with the other ones at all. I'm not sure what we can do. We, uh, around my house, we lost power for a few days. And uh, so we were having to figure out how to make coffee because that was a non-negotiable for my wife. And so I used the gas grill outside to boil water, which is like the most caveman thing, like heat, fire, water, to then pour into a French press inside, which is like the most hoity-toity thing. So we were like a, uh, like a mix of just, it, yeah, nothing made sense. It was crazy. Um, but that was our week. I'm sure you had some of the same kind of experiences. It was a little crazy. We could probably swap stories all together. What I was thinking, though, I hate that we don't give out merit badges for adulthood, that that ends with Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts, because I would have earned some merit badges, and you probably would have too. Like, I would have earned the Learn to Cook Frozen Totino's Pizza on a Gas Grill merit badge, which is a... An underappreciated merit badge when you're hungry for lunch and you've just got a frozen pizza. You can do that on a gas grill. I almost would have gotten the merit badge for successfully walking down an icy driveway in my house shoes, except right at the end I lost it and totally ate it, which uh, was no good. And I pre- The first service laughed at that. Y'all are like a little sympathetic. I... Uh, <laughs> I like this group. They're like, that sounds hilarious. And I had to tell them our, our little ring doorbell did not have power, so we didn't record the video. And um, they wanted me to recreate it in the middle of the service, and I just thought that was inappropriate. So that's, I'm glad you come to the second service is what I'm saying. Much more spiritual crowd in here today. This is good. And online. I'm, I, you're, I'm sure you're the same way online as well, if you're joining us. Just really good to be back and uh, good to be here with all of y'all. We're going to start a new series that is going to take us from now until Easter. Uh, it's called Investigating Jesus. And if you have your Bible and want to open up to the book of Luke, we're actually going to look right at the first four verses from Luke, and I want to read them together. We're going to stand in just a moment. But this series is going to, to like I said, take us from now until Easter Sunday, and it is going to investigate. We're going to consider the life of Jesus together Sunday by Sunday. And I want to begin by reading these first couple of verses from the book of Luke. And so if you have your Bible, we're going to stand together in honor of the reading of God's word and just read these four verses from the book of Luke. It says this, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, 
having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? God, we open our hearts to hear a message from you. Not just a message from a preacher, not just uh, our own thoughts, but God, we, we clear our minds. God, we set aside all distractions. We give you our absolute, absolute devotion and focus right in this moment. God, we want to hear from you. We're ready. We're waiting. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. So about 18 months ago, uh, I started a conversation with somebody who is not a believer. Um, they are, and they're like an antagonistic, like they are going to convince you. They're an evangelistic, like non-believer. They, they are not only not a believer in Jesus, but they don't want other people to believe in Jesus either. And they've got a number of complaints about why uh, it's ridiculous to believe in Jesus. And um, this was sort of a new thing for me. I, I haven't always been like a leader in apologetics in, in my family or, you know, just in my community that hasn't been a, a discipline that I've studied. But I engaged in this conversation, and, and I'll cut to the end. It doesn't have the like happy ending, oh yeah, now they, they converted and they followed Jesus. I wish that were the case. But it's kind of an ongoing conversation. And it's been fascinating for me to hear the objections that somebody else has to following Jesus because I feel like I have followed Jesus my entire life. I grew up in church. It's just always been a part of my life. When I was 10, I had a clear moment of understanding the sin, the, the times I had chosen to divert from God's plan for my life, and I didn't want to choose that life. And, and you know, it's been up and down. There's been moments where I've needed repentance since that moment. But at the age of 10, I remember just dedicating my life to the Lord and I have not really looked back since that moment. I just, I feel like I have followed Jesus all my life. And so to hear somebody raise complaints and uh, objections to what it meant to follow Jesus has been an interesting uh, experience for me. And the number of their objections, in fact, I'd say probably the central objections that they have, all seem to come back to the Bible, like, they're, they're all things about the Bible, things they disagree with, things that they don't understand. Just a lot of complaints about the Bible, which makes me wonder, do you ever think about what the Bible is? Every single Sunday we gather together, and uh, I appreciate that about Coastal Oaks Church. I appreciate that about the churches that I've grown up in. The Bible is central. When we gather, this guides our time together. We, we open it up. We read from it. We, we explain the meaning of the Bible. The Bible is central. One of the leading spiritual growth activities you can do if you want to grow closer to God is to read your Bible. We think that the Bible is central to following Jesus. And yet, do you ever think about what actually is the Bible? If somebody was to ask you, what is the Bible, how would you answer that question? You might talk about, well, it's God's word, or maybe it's an authority for life. You, you might have a number of answers, and maybe if you kind of got through all of those and you said, well, at its very basic level, the Bible is a book, right? It's a book. Well, I think it's actually even more than that. The Bible gets its name from the Greek words tas biblios, which literally means the books. The Bible isn't just one book. It is a bound collection of a number of books. That's what the Bible is, tas biblios. It is the books. In fact, the Bible is more like a library of books. You know the Spanish word for library is 
Biblioteca, right? Biblioteca, biblios. It comes from the same root, a collection of books. The Bible is a library. It is a collection of books, and books of many different kinds. If you go through your Bible, you'll notice that there are some books that are historical, that they are trying to chronicle the work of kings or leaders or rulers. There are some books that are poetic, and they have songs or they have different sayings. There are some books that are letters written from one person to another person. There are books that we talk about, we call them the prophets, because they are a message that was delivered that foretold what was going to happen in the future. The Bible is a collection of many different kinds of books, and it has a unifying central character who is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The Bible is a collection of books about God's activity throughout history. Sometimes God's activity is recorded in a historical fashion. Sometimes God's activity is recorded through song. Sometimes God's activity is recorded in a letter. Sometimes it's recorded in these prophetic words that God has revealed to somebody to deliver. But the Bible is a collection of books that chronicle God's, his, God's activity throughout history history, throughout time. The Bible is written over centuries, throughout location. It's written in different countries, even throughout languages. It's written in different languages. The Bible is a collection of books that chronicle God's, his, God's activity throughout history, across locations, across cultures, across time, and across languages, which may make us wonder, how do we know what the Bible records is accurate? These are some of the central complaints that I heard from this person. Okay, sure, the Bible's a book. Sure, it's ancient. Sure, all of those things. But there's no reason to think that the Bible is actually true. There's no reason to think that the Bible is reliable. And maybe you've wondered some of those things in your life. Like, how do we know that an ancient document like this, something that was written a long time ago, how do we know that it's reliable? Well, this is a question that drives a whole discipline of study called textual criticism, where people study ancient documents to find out, is this actually an ancient document? People have to do this when you know, there, some new discovery will be made and somebody says, oh, this is from this time period. And people have to go in and research it and look at it very carefully and decide, no, it's not actually from this century. It's from this other century over here. Or, or no, this is a fake. Somebody is just, they wrote this later on. This isn't true at all. That's the discipline that tries to determine, are these documents accurate? Are they authentic and genuine? And when they do that, there's two questions that people usually ask about ancient documents to find out if they are true or reliable or authentic. The first question is, how many ancient copies do we have? Not how many copies are in circulation today, but like going back to the discoveries, the oldest copies, how many copies are available to us? How many do we have? Now, notice I'm using the word copy because I don't know of a single ancient document that we have what's called the autograph copy, the, the actual original document. What survives are copies of those documents. So what textual critics want to know is, okay, well, how many copies of the ancient documents do we have? That's the first question. And then the second question is, how close are they to the original copy being written? 
So how many copies do we have? And then how close are they to the original date of when that book, that work was completed? So since we don't have the original copies, these are the questions that determine accuracy. If we have more copies that are closer to the original, we think there's a higher degree of accuracy. Well, there are some other books, other ancient works, that let me just tell you some of the stats on them. So one of them, Tacitus, who was an ancient uh, Roman historian, we have three copies of his work, The Annals of Imperial Rome. So three copies, and the earliest we have is about 900 years after the original was written. So for Tacitus, we have three copies. The closest they date is to about 900 years after it was written. Julius Caesar wrote a book called The Gallic Wars, and we have about nine copies that are roughly 900 years after the original. Tacitus, three copies. Julius Caesar, nine copies, both about 900 years after they were written. Thucydides, who wrote the history of the Peloponnesian War, we have about 20 copies that were close to 500 years after it was written. So three, nine, 20 copies, 900 years, 500 years after they were written. Because things, you know, deteriorate, things degrade. We don't always have the original things. We, we have to get as close as we can. And for those, we're within, you know, five to 900 years. For the New Testament, we have over 5,000 ancient copies of the New Testament that range from small manuscript fragments all the way up to complete copies. And on average, they are hundreds of pages long when we take the average of those 5,000 documents. And the earliest work that we have is within 100 years of when the New Testament was written. Think about that. For some that are never questioned as accurate, something like Julius Caesar's work, nine copies, 900 years after the original. For the New Testament, we have over 5,000 copies, all within, like some of them within 100 years of when they were written. People have talked about an embarrassment of riches for New Testament scholars, that we have so much evidence for the early copies in fact, somebody said we have more than 1,000 times the manuscript data for the New Testament than we do for the average Greco-Roman author. Now, I hear all of those things, and, and I'm pretty well convinced, right? I already told you. I already laid all my cards on the table. I've grown up in church. I assume that the Bible is accurate, and when I hear those kinds of things, I am just further convinced, and maybe you feel the same way. But for some, that's not enough evidence. And for this person that I was conversing with, that's not enough evidence. You may meet somebody, and that's not enough evidence. And what they point to are what are called variants, or they may describe them as errors. Now, as I said, these documents are hand-copied. I work in an academic setting, and so like when research papers get turned in, one of the things I'm checking for is plagiarism, which plagiarism is when somebody like copies something word for word, right, from somewhere else. That's plagiarism. In academic settings, we don't want that. We want you to have your own thoughts. We want you to write your own things. When it comes to copying ancient documents, we absolutely want plagiarism to take place. We want them to be copied word for word, perfectly from the original version uh, that's what we want the copy to look like. But it's inevitable that there are going to be some variants from one copy to the next. It might be that something is misspelled. 
that there's a different spelling in one version. Maybe it's the word order gets changed around. Maybe there's, there's a small omission or there's an addition. Maybe there are some uh, new ideas that are added or substituted. Or in the most extreme sense, there might be a total rewrite of the text. And somebody who does not view the Bible as accurate might say, did you know that there are variants or errors in those ancient copies? Bart Ehrman, who wrote a book called Misquoting Jesus, got a lot of attention a few years ago when his book was published because he uh, described those variants. And he made some pretty bold claims that when you hear them, they sound overwhelming because he described 200,000 to 400,000 variants that exist in the ancient documents. That is a lot of variance, right? And he makes the claim, he says, there are more variations among our manuscripts than there are words in the New Testament. Now, man, you might hear that and think, oh my goodness, wait, do we actually have an authentic Bible? Can I view this as reliable? If there's that many variants, how would we ever know what the original authors wrote down? How would we know? How would it be reliable? How could we talk about this as the inspired word of God when there are that many changes that have taken place in the ancient documents? Let me shed some light on that. One of the reasons that there are so many variants is because of the number of copies we have of the ancient documents. Because we have more copies, it makes perfect logical sense that we would have more variants. Now, you may be thinking, I don't, I don't understand. Help me better understand that. Okay, so imagine you took a book off the shelf in your house, just any old book, and that book probably has somewhere in the neighborhood of like 50,000 words, okay? So you grab a book off the shelf, it's got 50,000 words, and you give that book to two of your friends, and you ask them to hand copy a perfect copy of that book. And they agree to do it, and they do a fantastic job. So these two friends produce copied manuscripts of that book, and they have done it with 99.9% accuracy. That's pretty incredible, right? 99.9% accuracy would mean they only made one mistake. That is one misspelling or one addition or one change of word order. They only made one variant per every thousand words. 99.9% accuracy. So given that there were 50,000 words and they made a variant about once every 1,000 words, each friend made about 50 variants, 50 errors. So together you've got about 100 variants. That doesn't sound like that much. That sounds like a pretty faithful copy. But imagine that you didn't give the book to just two friends. You actually gave it to 2,000 of your friends and that they all copied it at the same level of accuracy. Well, if you gave it instead of to two people, but now to 2,000, that would mean that you have a 1,000 times more variants. So rather than 100 variants, you would now have 100,000 errors, 100,000 misspellings or changes in word order or additions or substitutions, and all of a sudden that starts to feel like a lot of errors. That starts to feel like there's something that's going wrong because you've got 100,000 variants and yet there's only 50,000 words in the book. But think with me for a minute. Would you rather try to get back to the original book with only two copies or 2,000 copies? 
If you only had two copies and you're looking at a line and you see that one person wrote it down this way and the other person wrote it down this way, how would you ever know which one is the original way that the author wrote it down? You would just have to take a guess. I think that this person is probably right and this person isn't, but you would only have two copies to compare. But if you had 2,000 copies, all of a sudden you could see, oh, yes, there is one variant here, but I see in 1,999 other versions that it's written down this exact same way. So we can better determine what the original work said. You see, by having more copies, it makes perfect sense that, of course, there would be more variants because we simply have more copies. But having more copies also means that scholars and archaeologists are much more likely to get back to the original written word that came to us straight from the authors. Now, there are some variants in the Bible that are significant, and scholars are a little um, unsure about exactly how to deal with them. But your Bible has actually already noted that when you look in your Bible. If you look at the end of the book of Mark, there's probably going to be a bracket or something that says, this is not included in some of the earliest manuscripts. In the book of John, the story of the woman who's caught in adultery, and people are ready to stone her, and Jesus writes in the dirt, and then um, all the Pharisees leave that story is offset by some brackets in your Bible that says this is not in the earliest manuscripts. Because those are some variants that scholars just can't quite see in those earliest copies. So they are, there's a number of copies with them, but they're not in the earliest manuscripts. So they offset them. And I tell you this, if you were to remove those two, how much does our understanding of Jesus or God's plan throughout the Gospels change? Very, very little. And that's what we find with most of the variants. Most of them are insignificant misspellings, changes like that. Only a very, very small number, less than 1%, have any significance. And of all of them, if you remove them, your understanding of Jesus, major theological points made in the New Testament would be left unchanged. So if somebody wants to bring up variants, you can say, no, 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 of course we have variants because we have a number of copies. And the bottom line is this. When it comes to the Bible, this collection of books that chronicle God's activity throughout history, you can be confident that we have a reliable copy of the original author's work. What we read today is authentic. It's accurate to what the original authors intended to preserve. And I say all of that because over the next six weeks, we are going to look at one of those specific authors and the narrative that he wrote down for his people at that time all the way through us today. We are going to be looking at the gospel of Luke and Luke's investigation of the story of Jesus. I think the book of Luke is phenomenal. It's fantastic. It's just, it's a really interesting gospel, partly because Luke is not a singular work. The gospel of Luke is a paired book that goes along with the book of Acts. It's kind of unfortunate the way that it's arranged in our Bible that we have John just sandwiched right there in the middle. But really, Luke and Acts were written by the same person and intended to go together. 
There's even a little bit of an overlap in the story. They both begin with uh, similar introductions. Luke and Acts are written as partner pieces to explain the promise of God fulfilled through Jesus and then the birth of this new believing community that is the early church. That's Luke. And taken together, if we take the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, together Luke wrote more verses than anyone else in the New Testament. Paul wrote more books, but Luke actually wrote more verses than anyone else in the New Testament. Luke as a character, as a person, is mentioned three times in Paul's letters. In Colossians, he describes Luke, the beloved physician. In Philemon, he mentions Luke. And in 2 Timothy 4, Paul is describing all of these people who have left him to go to other places. But he says, Luke alone is with me. Luke is mentioned three times as a companion of Paul, somebody who was with Paul uh, during a portion of his ministry. And Luke arrives in the New Testament story in kind of an interesting way. The book of Acts, the first part of the book of Acts is all written in third person. It's written about people who were doing something, but it's written in third person. But in Acts chapter 16, the perspective changes to first person. And in Acts chapter 16, it says, after Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. In the middle of the story of Acts, all of a sudden the perspective changes to one of we and us with the thought that Luke had joined Paul's work. And he's now recording almost like a diary what took place. Rather than having to go and learn about the earlier events, Luke is now an eyewitness to what's going on in the local church. But Luke was not an eyewitness to the life of Jesus. Luke did not live and, and learn from Jesus while he was physically on this earth, which makes Luke a great window into the story of Jesus for us. Luke is a second generation Christian, somebody who heard about Jesus and chose to repent, chose to reorient his life to follow the teachings of Jesus, not because he heard them directly from Jesus himself, but because he heard them from other people, which for those of us in this room who are followers of Jesus today, that's our story. We have not heard from Jesus himself while he was physically alive on this earth. We have heard from others and we have chosen to follow after Jesus. That is Luke's story, which makes Luke a great way for us to enter into the story of Jesus because our perspective shares something in common with Luke. And Luke sets out to write down the story of Jesus and the story of the early church. And he gives us his plan, his goal right here in verse three of chapter one. He said, it seemed good to me to write an orderly account for you. Luke sets out to write down an event log. He wants to write down an account. He wants to write down a description. He wants to write down a history of the events that had happened. That's Luke's goal. He tells us right there in the very beginning, I am trying to write an orderly account. Luke is aware that there are other descriptions that are already in existence, but he says, I want to write down an account for you. That's his goal, and that's why he sets out to write the story 
of Jesus. And that's really what Luke does. He writes down the story of the promises fulfilled in Jesus and then the birth of the new community. Now, to do this, as I said, Luke was not an eyewitness. He wasn't there. He didn't see things as they unfolded. So he had to go back and learn from people who had been on the scene. He grounds his account in the history, in the eyewitness accounts of what had taken place. And what he's trying to explain is the events that had been fulfilled. He wants to... uh, recast history as not just one event happening after another, but this is what God promised. When we look around and see what's taking place, we should see that God is fulfilling promises. And so he does that by connecting with eyewitnesses who would have known the story. In verse three, he says, I have carefully investigated everything, or I have followed all things closely. Luke sets out as an investigative journalist to go and talk to people. He mentions in verse two that there were people who were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. So how do we have the gospel of Luke? Well, we have it because Luke set about finding people who were there, who heard Jesus speak, who were present when things happened, and learning from them so that way he could compile it all into this orderly account. One of the things that Luke surely used was Mark's gospel. Mark is one of the first gospels that is written. Most scholars think that Mark was uh, hearing things from Peter and recording them, and so it's really Peter's story. And Luke was surely familiar with Mark's gospel because 40% of Luke is uh, directly correlating with Mark. But it wasn't just the other written word. It was also eyewitness testimony. There are some things that are included in Luke that aren't in any of the other Gospels. Like one of them is the birth story of Jesus. There are some things that he learned and saw that he alone includes. Which, think about that. Who would have been a great eyewitness for the birth story? Mary, right? She would have been a fantastic person for Luke to go and interview, to go and learn more about. And it's not surprising then that we read in the book of Luke statements like, and Mary treasured all these things in her heart. How would he know that unless he had spoken directly to Mary, unless she had been able to provide that insight? Because that's what Luke was doing, was going and finding eyewitnesses. And throughout his gospel, he names names of people who more than likely he heard the stories from, the people who are present. At the end of the book of Luke, there's this story about two men who are on the way to Emmaus, and Luke names one of them, Cleopas. Why would he do that? Well, because Cleopas was the one who was there, and Cleopas was the one who shared the story with him. And he does that because if there had been any doubts about the story, Luke is saying, well, you can go and find Cleopas and ask him about it, because he's the one who told me. I heard it from Cleopas, who was there when it happened. Luke does that throughout the gospel. He mentions all sorts of historical figures. In Luke chapter 2, he mentions several figures. In Luke chapter 3, he mentions several figures. Archaeological evidence has backed up all of those names, found inscriptions on statues, found coins with those names, even the obscure ones that we would never have heard of before, like Lysanias of Abilene. You didn't know that Jesus was all the way in Texas, right? No, I didn't either. But it is there in the book of Luke. Now, there was a, a region of Syria that would have been uh, was called Abilene, and there have been evidence after evidence that corroborates what Lucas said. 
Luke uh, must have interviewed women, which wasn't like some progressive agenda thing because really in their time, a woman's testimony wouldn't have counted for very much. So why would Luke have included them? Because they were actually there, because they were the ones that were there. And one of them that's named in Luke chapter eight, he's describing these women who are following along with Jesus and he says, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household, that these women were helping to support them out of their own means. Think about that for a moment. Herod was this ruler who was diametrically opposed to Jesus. What Herod wanted was not what Jesus wanted. They were adversaries. And yet one of his employees that employee's wife was actually following Jesus and bankrolling the operation. That's a crazy detail. Why would Luke include that? Because that's what actually happened. And if you had questions about it, then those people could have gone and found Joanna. They could have found Susanna. They could have found Cleopas. They could have found any of these people and asked them, is this true? Because that's what Luke did. He found the eyewitnesses. He read everything that he could. He got himself up to speed because he wasn't there, but he wanted to learn the entire story so that he could create an orderly account. But Luke wasn't just writing a work of history. He wasn't just writing something because he saw, oh, this will be interesting for people one day. No, he tells us his purpose in verse four of chapter one. He says that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Luke writes his gospel. He sets about finding people, creating this orderly account so that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Consider the early church for just a minute. The, when Luke was joining on, when Luke was alive, when he was joining Paul's mission, there was story after story of persecution. The, the Romans were throwing them into prison. The Jewish authorities were killing them. They were sending people out to go and destroy all the local congregations. And I'm sure that at one time or another, multiple people who were following Jesus probably thought, did we get something wrong? I mean, is God judging us because we didn't get things right? That doubts probably started to creep in and think, wait, have we messed it all up? Have we gotten everything wrong? Was Jesus not really who we thought he was after all? And Luke sets about to write down the story of Jesus, to show how the story of Jesus fulfills all the promises that God had made, and then to show how the growth of the local church was an extension of God's activity in history. Luke wants the early church to have confidence that Jesus is who he said he was and that they should live as Jesus has called them to live. Luke wasn't just writing a work of history. Luke was writing a book to give confidence, assurance, certainty about the things that they had heard and what had been taught. And in that way, Luke speaks to us today. Perhaps you've had a moment in your life when you thought, I don't really know if all this Jesus stuff is legit. I don't really know if the Bible is accurate. I don't really know if I can trust that this old, ancient, dusty book is something that I should base my life on. And maybe even if you are a Jesus follower, you've looked around at the state of affairs and just thought, has the church gotten something wrong? Is, is this really what we're supposed to be doing? It, maybe I've made a big mistake with my life in following Jesus, and maybe I should have done something else. And if you've ever had one of those moments, 
Luke wants to speak directly to you. Luke wants to talk to you. It's almost like he, if you could just get in conversation with Luke, Luke would say, no, let me lay out the entire story. Because when you hear the entire story, you will have confidence that Jesus is who he said he was. You will have confidence that God has been working all along. And that even though it might seem grim right now, that even though there might be some things that seem dark and difficult to understand, we can be confident in the things that we have been taught. And we can be confident that God is still at work around us today. And so friends, as we look ahead to Easter, over the next few weeks, we are going to look at some of the stories that Luke records for us. Some of the events that Luke sought to preserve so that people in his time, as well as people throughout generations, could be confident in the message of Jesus. But here's the one problem with that. If the Bible is true, if what Luke records is accurate, if all of these things actually happened the way that Luke said that they did, then we find ourselves with a choice. Because if Jesus is who he said he is, then we have to decide if we're going to live as the people he's called us to be. And that's a whole different thing. It's a lot easier to attack the reliability of the Bible and dismiss it entirely and say there's no way it can be true because if it's true, it will make an enormous impact in our life. But friends, that's what I want. I want to follow Jesus. I want to be the kind of people that Jesus has called us to be because I think that this is reliable and true. And we can base our life on what Luke records. We can have certainty in the things that we have been taught. And over the next few weeks, as we look ahead to Easter, those are the stories I wanna share with you. So I hope you'll come back. I hope you'll go with us on this journey as we seek to investigate Jesus along with Luke over the next five weeks. Would you pray with me?